You can turn then to our sermon text for today, which is Genesis 25. Genesis 25, 27 through 34. Genesis 25, starting in verse 27. This will be a shorter passage than we've had recently. In context, Isaac had just prayed for Rebecca, that, and then she conceived twins after 20 years uh, of, of not having children. And these twins struggled in her womb, and she had inquired of the Lord of the meaning of this, and he had said that these twins would be divided even from the womb, and the older would serve the younger, and they were born. Uh, Esau was the older, of course, just barely, and Jacob uh, was born holding his heel, named Esau and Jacob. We learned last week that salvation is of God's sovereign grace. Uh, Today we learn more about Esau and Jacob, uh, particularly an occasion uh, in which uh, Esau uh, demonstrated folly. Let's look at Genesis 25, starting in verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for Uh, giving us instruction for recording these things, for our instruction in righteousness and our uh, building up uh, and edification. We pray that you would use it in this way by your spirit, that we might learn from what you have uh, recorded and delivered to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this uh, rather short narrative, we have Uh, perhaps unusual clarity about the point of the passage. Uh, Often the point is is rather worked into it as you look at the author's intent as it may be gathered by what he chose to record and the way he uh, presents the account. But here we have a concluding statement, thus Esau despised his birthright. Uh, we, We see what we're supposed to get, I think the main point, from this passage, that Esau despised his birthright. Not only do we have this statement, but we have the exhortation in the New Testament in Hebrews based upon this text, to not be like Esau, who sold his birthright for a meal, to not be unholy or profane like Esau. So that should make it easier for me as a preacher, right? We have a main point already given here in the text itself. 
Esau despised his birthright. Do not be like Esau. At least that would be uh, one way to put it. Uh, Do not despise the grace of God and fail to obtain it. Uh, Do not neglect the good news that has been proclaimed to you. There is both God's uh, grace, his goodness demonstrated here in that it is freely offered, but it is also an exhortation to you to not despise it, to not to fail to obtain it, to not neglect this great salvation. Do not treat your spiritual heritage with contempt, to beware that root bearing bitter fruit, uh, something that is spoken of in Hebrews but was also in uh, Deuteronomy, uh, speaking of this hard heart that would bear poisonous fruit, not the good fruit that God looked for. Beware that deceitfulness of sin that hardens the heart against God. Esau's birthright was no ordinary birthright. It was a holy thing because it included being an heir to the covenant that God made with Abraham and the promised inheritance of a land that God would provide them, uh, an inheritance that would be a home with God. And as firstborn, he was to lead the people of God. But Esau despised his privilege. He despised his responsibility. He traded his birthright for a thing of the moment, for a stew that was gone even within this short text. He had it. He ate it. He left. He was far from the far-seeing faith of his grandfather, Abraham, who was able to go out not knowing where he was going, to look to God for the inheritance despite trials, despite uh, difficulties, even dying without seeing the full fruition of these promises, dying in faith. Yet Esau holds this birthright in contempt. What use is of it? What use is it to me uh, who am about to die? Probably exaggerating with respect to the amount of exhaustion he felt, but he was tired and he really wanted some of that red stew. His birthright, uh, something that we might not be as familiar with today, was something important, uh, especially at the time that we speak of. It was referring to his right as the firstborn son of Isaac. Even though it was only firstborn by a little bit as a twin, uh, he was still the first one to come out and had this birthright as the firstborn son, which referred to, to dignity, to authority, to a double share of the inheritance. We might see this as it's used in Scripture in Genesis 27, when we get to the blessing that the, who Isaac thought was the firstborn, at least, was made lord over his brothers, particularly when brothers dwelt together and someone had to be the head of the, the clan, that the firstborn would succeed to his father's role. Um, it also referred to dignity. Later, when Joseph seated his brothers in Egypt, he seated the firstborn according to his birthright. Same, langu- uh, same word here. Um, and the practice that was later enshrined in the law of giving a double portion to the firstborn was already evident when J- Jacob himself uh, gave the rights of the firstborn to, uh, to Joseph by giving each of his sons a full inheritance so that Joseph received a double portion. If you had uh, two sons that were going to inherit something, you would divide it up three ways and give two parts to the oldest and one part to the youngest. Um, This was enshrined in the case law in Deuteronomy, whereas even if the firstborn was the son of 
an unloved woman and there was a second wife who was loved, that the right of the firstborn still belonged to the firstborn. That wasn't reason to deny him his rights, for he was the first fruits of his father's strength. But we see even in Jacob's family that it could be uh, transferred to another, that Reuben lost his birthright by his immorality. And so he was not enrolled as the oldest son, uh, but that it was given to the sons of Joseph. And this is spelled out in First Chronicles 5, verses 1 through 2, again, using this word birthright, that the birthright was not given to Reuben, but rather to Joseph. As Jacob prophesied in Psalm 78 describes, the right of the firstborn was later transferred from Joseph's tribes due to their failure to Judah. And thus David would rule over his brothers as king over Israel. And so this birthright was, was Esau's position his, as the heir, and particularly as the firstborn heir of Isaac. And like I said, that was especially important because of the special spiritual inheritance, and heritage, the covenant that had been made with Abraham and Isaac and would come to Esau and Jacob as well. But how much did Esau value his birthright? What price did he put on it? You know, we usually uh, estimate the value of something by how much we're willing to pay for it. Uh, That's why people will sometimes bargain or people will try to figure out what price should we put on it? How much do people really want this? Um, What price did he put on his birthright? He valued it as much as a bowl of red lentil stew. We don't even really learn the kind of stew until the end of this story. At first, it's just this red stew, this red stuff. What is it? And then we learn it's lentil stew. It's, uh, that's all that it is. I guess a little bread with it as well. And he traded it away for the single meal that was gone very quickly. And he did so irrevocably with an oath. Jacob uh, requires a, a, or asks for an, an oath to confirm this deal. Uh, so that he would not go back on it, to swear by the Lord's name that God would be a witness to this transaction. And Esau trades it away to satisfy his hunger. Now, the question might arise, did Esau trade away all rights of inheritance or just his rights as the firstborn son? Uh, I think the analogy with Reuben's loss of the birthright would indicate that he was giving up his position as the firstborn, that double portion, and, and gave that to Jacob. But to voluntarily give up this double portion, to voluntarily give up this birthright, showed contempt for the inheritance uh, altogether. Thus, this contempt would lead in time to his exclusion from the covenant. He despised his birthright. He despised the spiritual heritage of his father's. And so by despising his birthright, he went down the path of being disinherited of the covenant promise. God's people today should learn from this to not trade uh, Christ for anything, for that which was promised in the covenant to Abraham, this offspring through whom the world would be blessed, uh, by which this blessing would come both upon Abraham, his offspring, and even unto all the nations. Do not trade Christ for anything, much less for a bowl of stew. Do not despise your spiritual heritage, this great salvation. God freely offers eternal blessings in Christ, so do not be profane like Esau and despise this grace. So first I want to look at this birthright as it would apply to us. What is your right as a 
a member of the covenant that God has made with his people, and the reason to highly esteem it, the temptations to despise it, and the folly of despising it. First, what is this birthright? How are we to think of ourselves, this passage applying to, to you and me? Or what is your right as a member of the covenant? It's nothing less than the blessing of God. That's what God had promised to Abraham, that blessing, I will bless you, that I will surely bless you, rather than the curse that had come upon mankind for his sin, that he would bless you. The favor of God, the smile of God, the grace of God is what he had uh, promised in his covenant. It is his blessing despite your sins, which would deserve his curse. You deserve judgment, but God blesses, and so that involves forgiveness, forgiveness of sins that have been committed, the restoration to the household. He provides this through one of Abraham's offspring, through Jesus Christ, who died that we might be forgiven, who rose that we might be justified and embraced by God and receive his blessing forever. God binds himself in Christ as his people's shield and defender, their faithful protector and provider, their covenant Lord. We might call him an ally, except ally usually refers to someone that's kind of equal with you, but, but a far vastly superior ally who will defend you and bring you out of every trouble. He himself is the fountain of blessing. And so we enjoy him. We are called to walk with him, even as he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden before they fell. He promises an inheritance to his people. He promised an inheritance to Abraham, and that did not pass away when Abraham died, but rather to continue to, uh, that promise continued to give an inheritance to Abraham, a land that he would show him, a heavenly country, which he would inherit forever, a secure possession, a place in which you also might dwell with God, a paradise like that which was lost in Eden. Sometimes because it's a long book, it's, we might forget that this book begins in Eden, not with Abraham, uh, that it is those blessings that, have, that were lost that were then restored and promised again by this covenant. As death was the curse for sin, so as blessing brings a reversal of that curse, the promise of resurrection from the dust and of eternal life. And not only that, but also that he would make Abraham and his children, you and I, as we believe in Jesus Christ, to be a blessing to the world, to bless that you might be a blessing, to be a God to you and to your children. Uh, Through them, he would bring this blessing to the nations, that uh, he puts you not only in a position of salvation, but that of a position of honor and responsibility uh, to to be his servants that are, are working on his task in the world, even as he had sent Adam and Eve initially to subdue the earth to be his image in the earth, to glorify him in their work. Now, as circumcision was the sign and seal of these things to Esau, that he was an heir to these promises, that he received the same sign that to Abraham was a sign of the righteousness that he had by faith that was given to his children and then to their children, 
that these things were the promise to, to, to Esau. So baptism is a sign and seal to you, that you have been pledged to God, that he has pledged himself and these benefits to you. But of course, just as it was for Abraham's children, so also for you, that it's promised on the condition of faith. So do not despise your baptism and the covenant that it confirms. That is what is your right as a covenant member, which is held out to you freely for Christ's sake. Secondly, there are great reasons to highly esteem this gift. First of all, it is given by God. God is the one who gives it. That alone should cause us to value and highly esteem it, because he should not be despised. He should not be held in contempt. Secondly, it's, be, it's given despite your demerit. You deserved quite the opposite. Did Esau remember that? Do you remember that? Or do we take it lightly for granted? It is an eternal blessing. You know, you might be excited to receive a gift that you get to enjoy for a day, uh, maybe, you know, a special treat where you can eat it, but you particularly probably value those gifts that uh, last, that you might be using several years from now, uh, that are, are good quality, right? If you are just give, give, given a gift from someone else, how much more should we highly esteem and value this eternal blessing from God that will never fade away? It is a covenant with the eternal God, and he does not die, does not fade away with time, even with death. It brings blessing both now and later. It holds promise in every respect. God cares for his children in this life and blesses them, even as he trains them through trials. But those are for their good too. So it's not like you have to choose, do I want good now or do I want good later? It's no, do you want good now and later or, or not good at all? Uh, that the sin is going to promise you, oh, this will be good for you. This is going to be enjoyable. But actually, the way of goodness and blessing both now and forever, is found in Christ. As Paul said in 1 Timothy, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This gift also places you in a position of responsibility and honor. If you were appointed to some high office in our government, wouldn't that be at least uh, of worthy of high esteem, not to be taken lightly. God has made you kings and priests, light to the world, seating you with Christ in the heavenly places. You and your household to bring Christ's blessings to the nations. This is a great thing to be highly esteemed. Not only that, but it costs God dearly. It did not cost him gold or silver. It cost the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is how he was able to make this covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's the only reason he was able to renew a relationship of friendship with fallen man is by the lamb that would be slain. And Hebrews 10.29 asks, If it was bad to set aside the law of Moses, then how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? We should not despise the precious blood of Christ, but rather highly esteem and prize what has been purchased at such 
agony and humiliation voluntarily out of love on your behalf. And yet, there are temptations to despise it. There is sinful ingratitude and rebellion, plain and simple. Our spirit rises up against the goodness of God for no good reason, but that is the way of sin. It doesn't make sense, and we often want to cast off that which is good for us, like sheep that will go astray, even though it is bad for them. That is the way of sin. But also, Jesus warns, like in Luke 8, 14, of the cares and riches and pleasures of life, which are those thorns, particularly that's the, 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 the cares of this life, the, the love of money, the love of pleasure, uh, can be those thorns that choke out the word and cause it to not bear fruit. So beware the love of money, a root of all kinds of evil, uh, which uh, causes us to attend to the things of this moment and take a hold on a person's heart and cause them to go astray from prizing the greatest treasure. Beware the love of pleasure. Esau seems to have man, been a man who, who loved his pleasure, loved feeling comfortable, who wanted that red stew very dearly. Let us beware of the love of pleasure, the pleasures of life, which should be received as a great gift of God, that we should give thanks to God and not despise. They are good gifts, but neither should we use as something that would lead us away from God, uh, to, to beware of the temptation in it, uh, to grow negligent and to forget the one who has given good gifts. The cares of this world, along with the deceitfulness of riches, can be those thorns that choke out the remembrance of the word and the treasure of God's gift. We ought to, what, what should we do with the cares of this world? How do we cut down those thorns? Remember, we, we cast them upon the Lord. We look to God in faith and pray and pour out our souls, pour out our hearts, cast them upon the Lord, remembering that He is a Father who loves His children, who cares for even the grass, the field, and the birds of the air. How much more will He care for you? These are thorns to be cut down that they might not choke out the life and the Word but not only will these things perhaps cause be temptations to lose sight of the goal, to wander from the path, but also there is the persecution. That's in the parable of the sowers, the, uh, another fault. Not only is the thorns that might choke it out, but there's also the, the, the sun that comes out and scorches the plants that have not been firmly rooted. There is the persecution, which is hostile, that is going to seek to move, force you out of the way, to cause you to back away from this gift of God and to give it up that you might not have the hostility of the world directed against you, that the world will uh, put its pressure upon you uh, to embrace its waves of sin and to think little of Christ. But there's also that ridicule which belittles it, which is also a, a temptation to back away. You really think this highly of, of this spiritual gift, this love of God? Do not be laughed out of your religion, uh, even though that is another form of testing that will come. These snares work subtly. Scripture uses language like thorns, like a bitter root, like something that grows, 
uh, that gradually causes one to drift away. That's how often apostasy works. It doesn't happen with one big moment in which you were a f- you know, faithfully doing everything, and then all of a sudden you decided, I'm going to walk away. But rather, people drift away. And Esau was already on his way when this time of testing came. They take hold and get stronger. Unless those thorns are mortified and mown down, Esau would live to regret his contempt for the birthright with tears. Might not have seen the significance at the moment. And there is great folly in despising this birthright. The last point here. Esau had held a position of preeminence among the people of God, a select place in a select household among all the families of the earth. God had chosen Abraham and Isaac, and now he was one of two children of Isaac, a special place. But he ended up not only losing his preeminence, but his place in the people of God altogether, going off to a different land. It's a tragedy when a person is so close to salvation and yet fails to obtain it. Imagine a person standing next to the door to paradise for years, and he stands right next to it, and he doesn't go in. While this, and then the door closes, and he is shut out forever, though he could have entered at any moment before. Matthew chapter 8 says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sons of the kingdom, the heirs of the covenant, those to whom it belonged, might be shut out, might lose their privileges by a lack of faith, by not having faith in Jesus Christ. There is in the church in this age uh, a mixture. We are marked by the sign of the covenant, and yet we must take hold by faith of Jesus Christ. And beware of apostasy, aware of covenant breaking, beware of despising your birthright. Esau sold his birthright for a meal. Judas sold his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. People today continue to fall away for trivial, momentary things. Some people would rather get drunk every night than to get saved. To have sex however they want, rather than the blessing of God forever to gain more respectability in the world than to have the favor of God. They purchase their fading pleasures at the price of God's wrath and curse and despising his gift, which is graciously offered to sinners. So let's not be like Esau, not be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his meal, or sold his birthright for a single meal. Let no one fail to obtain the grace of God. Let no root of bitterness grow up in your heart, thinking that, oh, I shall be fine, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, I shall be safe. But rather, let's gratefully prize the birthright. Receive God's gift of blessing and salvation and highly esteem it and and delight in it and walk confidently in it. Run the race with endurance, looking to the promises of God, not merely to what feels best for the moment. If it means not having that bowl of stew, then you go hungry, but rather you prize and keep it as a very precious thing. Rather than being like Esau, let's be like Moses. Hebrews describes Moses in a way utterly different than 
Esau. Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He could have had it all. He, he could have remained in the household of Pharaoh, enjoying the, the treasures and pleasures of the highest achievements of civilization at that moment, but he rather prized even the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of, uh, of Egypt. And that is what we ought to do, to prize even the reproach of Christ. For it also, those who suffer with him will also be glorified with him. So you prize the gift that is given, that has been uh, signified, that has been proclaimed to you. You have heard the good news. And so let us prize it and not despise it. Join with me in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for the good gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your blessing, your favor, your smile upon us, that you are our refuge and support, our shield and defender through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would remind us again and again that we might never forget this great gift, that we would embrace it by faith and not reject it, that you would so work in each of our hearts that none of us would be like Esau, that rather you would add to the numbers of your people those who are like Esau currently. We pray that you would convert them to prize highly the good gift and to receive it joyfully by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.